to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is... John Van Trieste. And the destination... 1697. In 1697, a Chinese man called Yu Yonghe made his way up Taiwan's west coast at the head of an expedition. Their objective, the sulfur fields of the north. Sulfur was a key ingredient in gunpowder, and the explosion of an imperial gunpowder depot the year before meant that Chinese officials needed a lot of sulfur in a short period of time. Taiwan's northern hot springs offered a rich supply. This enigmatic man, called Yu Yonghe, had agreed to go, probably to the huge relief of the officials. He wasn't anyone of big importance, but he liked traveling and living dangerously. He trekked all over the wilds of southeast China and felt that Taiwan would just be a new adventure. For Chinese eyes anyway, much of the island was new. Imperial China had only established its rule on the island a bit over a decade before. Outside a few settlements, ethnic Chinese were still thin on the ground, and imperial control only covered the island's western plains. The diary that Yu Yonghe kept during his travels in Taiwan gives us a rare, first-hand account of Taiwan at the beginning of imperial rule, before all of this changed. We began following Yu Yonghe's journey last week, listening in as he crossed the Taiwan Strait, gathered supplies, and started on the trail to the northern sulfur fields. He'd wanted to get there the fast way, hugging the coast in two boats he bought for the purpose. But an old Taiwan expert in his party convinced him that the coast was too dangerous and that it would be safer to take the long, sweaty overland route instead. Another member of the party, a man named Wang, refused to listen to this warning, though. So it had been decided to split the party in two. Wang and his men would take to the seas and head northward with many of the supplies. Meanwhile, Yu and the others would take the low, slow trail through aboriginal villages and across rivers swollen with summer rain. When we left him, Yu was getting close to his destination and worrying about whether Wang and his two boats were doing okay. It's a bit of a shock then when he catches sight of Wang. As the party enters a village, Wang appears like a ghost. He doesn't look good. Isn't he supposed to be at sea? What's happened to everyone? And what about the supplies? Wang says that the whole journey was a series of mishaps. The sea was rough, and his boat was left damaged and unable to steer as the other boat sailed away. In the end, Wang's boat was wrecked close to shore, and all the supplies are lost, save whatever can be salvaged on the beach. Messengers arrive from the area around the sulfur fields to inform you that his other boat did make it. He later finds out that this boat had to ditch some of its supplies in bad weather, and with the other ship now wrecked, the party now has only a fraction of the supplies they'd prepared. In the end, they do manage to recover some of the essential tools, so at least there's that. Now, just over four months after he left home for Taiwan, Yu finally arrives near the sulfur fields. The party reaches the Danshui River, a wide river that runs through what's now Taipei out to the sea. Yu and his men are received by the local village chief, who has a few crude dwellings built for the party closer to the work site. The party travels inland up the river by boat. 
They reach an area that today is still home to sputtering, steaming vents and sloshing, bubbling water. Here, around what's now the Beitou district of Taipei, you can still see a thin yellow film of sulfur on some of the exposed rock faces. But there are also big differences between the scene that Yu describes and what you'll see in the same places now. Travel up the river today, and you'll see urban sprawl on all sides, enclosed by a rim of mountains. This is the Taipei Basin. But in Yu Yonghe's day, this area was an enormous lake, and what's now the city of Taipei was completely underwater. He says the lake is so big you can't even see the other side. But the lake is also brand new. He hears tell that this lake is the result of a catastrophic earthquake three years before. The remains of Aboriginal villages and the tips of tall bamboo can still be seen rising just a little bit out of the lake water. After arriving at camp, Yu describes the process of extracting sulfur. Take sulfur-filled soil from the area, mix with oil in a pot, and heat over fire. The consistency, heat, and stirring are all crucial. Any mistakes, and a batch can be ruined. With cloth and some of the other goods he's managed to rescue, Yu pays the people of nearby Aboriginal villages to dig up the dirt they'll need and send it their way. Always looking for an adventure, Yu decides he's going to see the source of all this sulfur for himself. After slogging through high grass and thick woods, Yu, along with one of his friends and some guides, arrive at a place where hot water bubbles everywhere and thick sulfurous steam fills the air. He leans over to take a look into a boiling sulfur pot and gets a faceful of some awful fumes. That's the end of that adventure. He later notes that the smell of sulfur lingers on him for days. Anyone who soaked in these hot springs before can relate. Work at the sulfur campsite continues into the autumn. Before he set off, Yu had been warned about the dangers of northern Taiwan. Officials had urged him to stay in the safety of Taiwan's capital, located at the time in Taiwan's south. You can manage this job remotely, they told him. But Yu Yonghe insisted on making the journey himself. Now he finds out what these officials had been warning him about. Everyone in his camp, it seems, comes down with horrible illnesses. The ever-resilient Yu Yonghe himself is one of the few that doesn't fall ill. But around this point in the diary, his frightened descriptions of Taiwan's nature show us a man who's feeling alone and surrounded. His state of mind isn't helped by aboriginal arrows that are launched from the forests in the night. We saw last time that Yu Yonghe's notes about aboriginal people are one of the important parts of his diary. Here again, in between some general observations about Taiwan, he stops to comment on the state of the aboriginal people he sees around him. When it comes to talking about aboriginal customs, Yu Yonghe is often less than complimentary. His belief in the superiority of his own Chinese ways never wavers, and he writes that these aborigines should be encouraged to adopt Chinese customs themselves. But he also recognizes Taiwan's aborigines as people with the same human nature as ethnic Chinese like him. He's critical of the crushing burdens that local officials and interpreters put on these aborigines, and he calls out the abuses of some of his fellow Chinese on the island. For Yu Yonghe, there's no contradiction between feeling superior and feeling sympathy for Taiwan's aborigines. 
As autumn sets in, newly arrived workers from China join the sick. Some of them have to be sent off back home by ship, while others simply die where they are and are buried by the camp. A wild storm, perhaps a typhoon, blows through, wrecking the camp and threatening to blow it away. Floodwaters rise, trees crash, and the gale screams through the mountains. Yu Yonghe is forced to just wait it out, hungry and wet. But once the storm passes, the camp is rebuilt, and work on refining sulfur continues. It's now late fall. Their quota filled, Yu Yonghe and the surviving Chinese workmen can now depart for home. Yu's now been away for around nine months, dodging shipwreck, disease, snakes, hunger, a typhoon, and arrows flying near his hut at night. To the very end of his journey, it seems that nature has it in for him. On his way home, his ship runs into rough seas and limps damaged all the way back to China. But he does make it home. I always wanted to go far away, and I did. But, he concludes, there's no place like home. After this diary, Yu Yonghe just disappears into history, not to be heard of again. Yu Yonghe wasn't a particularly important man, and he wasn't the first Chinese source to write about Taiwan either. But there's a kind of spark to his diary that makes it special. His colorful language and personal asides about how he feels gives readers a special feeling, like they're actually looking over his shoulder as he writes, back through time into the 17th century. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week.